welcome to week four. We're in week four now of our series called Equipped, where we're looking at spiritual disciplines. Uh, disciplines that are designed to, through implementing them in our lives, these are disciplines that, that men and women for the last 2,000 years have implemented into their lives, and, and it's allowed them to become the followers of Jesus that they're called to be. And that's what this series is about. And so I said this um, on, on the front end of week one of this series, and I think it bears repeating here, that I have made an assumption about all of you by showing up here today or, or, or tuning in today, and that assumption is that you actually desire to grow spiritually. And so uh, in light of that, uh, my aim up here is not really to be inspirational or even necessarily convicting as much as it is to be practical. Really, all uh, I, I want to do in this series is take these disciplines off the shelf, put handles on them, and put them in your hands so that we as a community can grow spiritually into the people that God has called us to be. So with, with all that being said, today we are going to look at a spiritual discipline that um, we are all but allergic to in our culture. Uh, it's a discipline that you, you probably don't even, you know, if, if, if everybody here was to list what you think the spiritual disciplines are, you might not even think this is one. And I'll say this, if you're anything like me, I can almost guarantee that if you're doing this at all, you're probably doing it wrong. How's that for an intro? Today, we're going to talk about the spiritual discipline of confession. Lock the doors, nobody gets to leave. Psalm 32, verses 1 through 11. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is the man the Lord does not charge with sin and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you took away the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who's faithful pray to you at a time that you may be found. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give counsel. Do not be like a horse or mule without understanding that must be controlled with bit and bridle or else it will not come near you. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is God's word. So The question I want to get at today is uh, when you fall, when you fail, when you sin, and you know that it's entirely on you, how do you get back up from that in such a way that you actually have more joy? You are actually more alive than you were before, because that's exactly what happened to David here. Uh, he had some, evidently, um, a moral failure of, of a, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a, a small thing. David did something really bad here. He doesn't tell us what it is, which I appreciate because that makes the psalm sort of universal. But the way that he describes what his life was like, that God's hand was heavy on him and his strength was drained and he, you know, he couldn't eat, he couldn't sleep kind of thing. David had this kind of colossal moral failure that was just swirling around inside of his heart and really eating him up. Um, but 
on the other side of that, somehow David got to a place where he had even more joy than he had before this moral failure. Uh, and, and really, that's the promise that this psalm holds out for, for every one of us, that we can have that same thing happen in our lives. And the way that you get there is the same way that David got there. It's through this thing ca- called the, the spiritual discipline of confession. And so that's what I want to look at today. I want to look at confession really from three different angles. First off, the need for it. Secondly, the way of it. And then the foundation underneath it. So, so first, I want to look at the need for confession, which sounds simple, but I think it's important to start here. Verse 1 uh, it says, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now, most every other version of the Bible that you read this in is going to say, how blessed is the, the, the one or the man whose transgression has been forgiven. And we've talked about this before, but, but the Greek, or, or pardon me, the Hebrew word translated blessed or blessedness is a word that, that we don't really have a English word to translate. It's a, it's a concept that basically speaks to um, the absolute pinnacle of human existence, absolute fullness of life, profound fulfillment, all of that. And, and so according to this psalm, the people who experience that are the people who most deeply experience their own forgivenness. And so what, what this psalm is saying, what David, the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is saying here, is that the people who are the most alive and the people who are, are, are filled with the most joy, the people who experience the most fulfillment, are the people who most deeply experience how forgiven they are because their guilt and their shame has been driven out of their lives through the discipline of confession. And before we go any further here, there's a... There's an objection because of the culture that we live in that I feel like needs to be addressed. Um, in our culture, when you talk to people about things like guilt and shame and the need for confession, uh, most modern people will hear things like that. And, and, and to the modern mind, those ideas, you know, at best sound archaic, but at worst... The, you know, that, that, that can even be seen as a damaging or borderline abusive thing because of the way that our culture has shifted. And what I mean by that is in, in more traditional cultures, morality is, is sort of imposed on you from outside of you, uh, either from your family, from your tribe, from society at large. And so you're basically saddled with all of these standards and these expectations and you're, you're told that you have to live up to them. And so what that means is that traditional cultures tend to produce people who really walk around carrying a lot of guilt and shame in their life because they don't feel like they're living up to the standards that have been imposed on them. But uh, our culture has shifted to the point that we're not a traditional culture anymore. We're what, what a sociologist would say is, is a modern culture. And in modern culture, um, nobody gets to tell you who you should be. Nobody gets to impose any expectation or standard on you. And in fact... Um, in modern culture, you are discipled by your culture uh, to choose your own identity for yourself, to choose who you want to be, and even to decide for yourself what is right and what is wrong for you personally. And if you, if you listen to our culture's most popular songs, read our culture's most popular books, watch our culture's most popular movies, you see that message over and over and over again. So when you talk to people in a modern culture about things like guilt and shame, there's a disconnect. And this is not a theoretical thing for me. This is something that I've experienced personally. It was a couple years ago now, and I had no idea what, I was, what, what was happening. I remember when I was still in the fire department, I was talking to one of my coworkers about my Christian faith. And we were in the engine bay, and he actually asked me why I was a Christian, which 
uh, if you have ever tried to talk to somebody about Jesus, you know uh, it's never that easy. Like most of the time when you're trying to share, you know, your relationship with Jesus with somebody that God's brought into your life, uh, you know, there's this, there's this kind of like balancing act almost. You know, you, you want to bring it up and you want to be faithful and tell them the truth, but, but you want to do that in a way that honors them and doesn't scare them off and doesn't damage the relationship and all that kind of stuff. So this guy just put it on a silver platter for me and asked me why I was a Christian. And I, I gave the classic traditional response. I said, because Jesus takes away my guilt and shame. And about 60 years ago, that would have made sense to about 9 out of 10 people in our culture. And, and so I expected him, in hearing me say that, you know, the, the way the conversation was supposed to go is he's going to say, man, that's amazing. I have so much guilt and shame that I carry around. That's so cool that Jesus takes that away. Can you tell me more? We go down the Romans road and we just baptize him right there in the engine bay kind of thing. And, uh, instead, he looked at me like I had seven heads, and he said what a modern person will say when you talk to them about this kind of stuff about nine times out of ten. He said, well, I don't really have guilt or shame, so I guess I don't need Jesus. And I had no idea where to go from there. And that, that, that response is very typical of a modern mindset. It's a mindset that says, you know, I don't struggle with guilt and shame because I don't let anybody else tell me who to be or how to live. Uh, maybe you know somebody close to you that, that thinks that way or has spoken to you that way. Maybe you even kind of think that way yourself. And, and if you do, if I can speak to that mindset for a second, I don't think it's that simple. In fact, I hope this doesn't come across offensive. I don't even believe you if you say that that's the case that you don't struggle with guilt and shame because you don't let anybody else tell you how to live. The reason I say that is because the second half of what we see in verse 1 here, because verse 1 says not only how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, the second part is whose sin is covered. And that phrase is a deliberate nod to Genesis chapter 3 where you remember Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed and then they rebelled against God and sin entered the world and the very first thing they did was they grew in this awareness of their nakedness and they felt this thing they'd never felt before called shame. And they instinctively knew they had to run and hide from God and sow fig leaves to try to cover themselves. And what that is showing us in Genesis chapter 3 is that the human heart, regardless of your cultural conditioning, regardless of, of what the people around you have told you or taught you or made you think about yourself, the human heart, since sin has entered the world, instinctively knows it needs to hide and cover itself. That every single one of us uh, has this kind of allergy to somebody seeing deeply into our life and seeing you know, how we think and how we live and who we are because we, the human heart knows it can't pass scrutiny. Meaning every one of us knows that if somebody pokes around in our life long enough, they're going to see things that we are ashamed of. And so to me, you, you can't say, well, I, hey, I get why traditional cultures struggle with guilt and shame, but we've evolved past that as modern people because we don't let other people impose standards on us. That just doesn't work. Uh, and, and the reason that I say that is because the human heart experiences that regardless. And so even if you're a person who goes through life saying, well, I don't let anybody else impose their standard on me. I impose standards on myself. If we can just be honest with each other, we don't even live up to our own standards. None of us are the people that we say we want to be that we say we aspire to be, that we pretend to be, that we want other people to think we are. We're never that person. And every one of us struggles with guilt and shame because of it. And so everyone compensates for that guilt and shame the same way that Adam and Eve did, which is why we're all so busy and burn so much energy putting up fronts. It's why everybody has a tendency to only put on Instagram pictures that make it look like they have the perfect life or the perfect family. 
It's why we are so poor, we are so terrible at handling criticism that if anybody speaks into our life about something that needs to change in us, we act like we've been abused, even when that might be a, a thousand percent true, this thing that somebody's telling us about ourselves. It's why we, we derive this kind of sick sense of pleasure gossiping about other people because that momentarily lets us feel better about ourselves. It's also why so many people are almost killing themselves, either overworking or undereating. It's all the same game that Adam and Eve were playing. We know that we need to cover ourselves, but sooner or later we all find out what Adam and Eve find out, which is that our fig leaves don't work any better than theirs did. And all of that is what makes the promise of Psalm 32 so amazing because Psalm 32 is saying you can be the kind of person that escapes that horrible way of life knowing that God himself, the only one who can truly see you to the bottom and the only one whose opinion ultimately matters, God himself has covered you. And what that means is that now we can find peace and now we can rest and now we can stop constantly defending ourselves and justifying ourselves and killing ourselves trying to prove ourselves which is this life of blessedness that Psalm 32 holds out for us as a promise. So that's the need for, this, for the spiritual discipline of confession. And so the next place I want to go obviously is, is the way of confession. In other words, how do you actually practice confession? And this might surprise you but, but believe it or not there is a right way to practice, to do confession, and there's a whole lot of wrong ways to do it. And if, if you think about it, that makes sense because that explains why so many people, maybe you know people like this, maybe you are a person like this, a lot of people go through life constantly confessing their failures over and over and over, but instead of that leading to more blessedness in their life, it leads to more brokenness in their life. And that, that's because that individual has practiced, they've done confession, they just haven't done it the way that God says we're to do it. And so the, the, the question is, how do you do confession in a way that leads to more blessedness instead of brokenness? And what Psalm 32 gives us, this is about as practical as I know to get, Psalm 32 gives us four basic things that we have to do as we practice confession uh, if we want to move toward this life of blessedness that David is talking about here. Four things. Here's the first one. First idea today. Number one, if you want to practice confession in a way that leads to blessedness, you have to, number one, be able to distinguish between true guilt and false guilt. Uh, verse 5, all four of these points actually are all going to be looking at something in verse 5 from a different angle. But I want to look at this specific phrase where David said, Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I acknowledged my sin to you, David says. Um, first off, confession will not, it, it cannot lead to blessedness until you and I learn to discern between true guilt and false guilt because, this is super important, not all guilt is true guilt. Uh, lots of people feel guilty for things that they should not be feeling guilty for, or they simply feel in a disproportionate, excessive amount of guilt for the things that they should feel guilty for. Right, if I can kind of you know, open up here a little bit, I am a firstborn child and an Enneagram type 1. I don't know if that means anything to you, but what it, what it, what it means for me is that uh, all of my life, I have struggled with feelings of failure because the, the people closest to me have pointed this out in me. I have a tendency to try to take responsible, responsibility for things that are not my responsibility, and therefore I tend to feel guilt that I shouldn't be feeling. And so, you know, throughout my life, I've had to work at resisting a kind of guilt that is false guilt. 
Uh, maybe that resonates with some of you. Maybe you all think I'm crazy now, but it's true. Uh, there is a kind of guilt that is false guilt. However, in saying that, it's equally important to know that not all guilt is false guilt, meaning some guilt is true guilt. Right? It's, it's, it's equally unreasonable either to believe that all guilt feelings are true and should be paid attention to as it is to believe that all guilt feelings are false and should be dismissed. And what you and I have to be able to do is determine between those two things. And of course, the question is, well, how are we going to do that? And I don't care who you are or what you believe, what every single one of us needs is a standard that we can bring our uncontrollable thoughts and feelings and emotions and desires, specifically our guilt feelings to, to help us make sense of the validity of of what we're feeling and and thinking and processing. Now, for for Christians, of course, that standard is uh, and has been the Word of God. But again, in our culture, what you'll hear a lot of times is, is, is people say, you have to decide what's, what's, what's true for you, right? Because your version of truth might not be my version of truth, might not be somebody else's version of truth. We all kind of have to decide that personally, which basically the idea there is you need to look inside yourself for the standard. Very common idea today. And, and again, if I could, could speak to that, hopefully in a non-offensive way, I would just offer this. If, if you believe that your heart has the ability to determine whether everything that you're thinking and feeling is valid or not, if you believe that your heart is going to be able to accurately do that for you in every situation this life finds you in, in every peak and valley, you know, in every morning and evening, that your heart is going to be able to be that accurate, I think that you are gravely overestimating the ability of your own heart. I think that you got that idea from a Disney princess movie and not the Bible. And I got nothing wrong with Disney. I just gave them a lot of money. I'm just saying I don't get my theology from their movies. And the Bible affirms this. That's why in 1 John, uh, we're actually told that when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Now what that is, that, that's, a te- that's explicitly teaching you and I that we should expect to find ourselves, maybe often find ourselves in places and situations in this life where our hearts go haywire and they don't know, you know up from down anymore. And what we need more than anything else in those times in our lives is a God who has set forth a standard that we can bring our hearts to and we can, we can bring our uncontrollable feelings to, and specifically we can bring our guilt feelings to so that he can help us figure out whether those feelings are valid or not. Because apart from that, what will happen is you will pay attention to guilt you should be dismissing, or you will dismiss guilt you should be paying attention to. And if you're wondering which one is worse, the answer is yes. <laughs> the point is, what David is giving us here is the picture of somebody who understands that and has lived that out. Because in verse 5, when he says, then I acknowledged my sin to you, what David is saying here is, I don't care what anybody tells me about my sin. I don't care what my, my advisors tell me about my sin. I don't even care what my culture tells me about my sin. I care what you have to say about my sin, God. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to weigh my failure and I'm going to weigh all the feelings associated with my failure before you and what you have revealed. And if you say I'm guilty, I'll accept that. If you say that I'm not, I'll accept that too. But I acknowledge it before you. And so what that's showing us is the first thing we have to do if we're going to practice the discipline of confession in a way that leads to blessedness is we have to determine between true and false guilt by taking our feelings to the word of God. And and again, that probably sounds like a pat answer, you know, read the Bible kind of thing, but it's really not that simple. 
Because anybody that's lived the Christian life or any other kind of life for any length of time knows there are plenty of situations in life that are not as black and white as we'd like them to be. About 85% of life, you're not going to find a Bible verse that says just do this, which is why we need this thing this book refers to as wisdom. And so in taking our feelings to Scripture, what we also need to do is surround ourselves with people who know us and know God and love us and love God. So that's the first thing. Determine between uh, true and false guilt. The second thing, We'll move a little bit quicker through this one. Number two, we need to be able to distinguish between grief and self-pity. Also, verse five, uh, David, in coming to this moment where he realized he had to confess, he said, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And he says, and you took away, very interesting phrase, the guilt of my sin. I kind of touched on this earlier. A lot of people go through life constantly confessing their shortcomings and inadequacies and, and failures, and they at least on the surface appear to be repenting, but given enough time, what you see time and time again, there's no lasting freedom and there's no lasting transformation. And, and if we're honest, maybe that's true of all of us to one degree or another. Nine times out of ten, the reason for that where that comes from is that we have failed to grasp what David has grasped here. Before I get to what David has, has understood, let me just kind of speak to human nature a little bit here. What, what we all tend to do on autopilot, I am so guilty of this. I'm sure that you'll be able to say amen if you kind of look in your own life. We tend to confess and repent of our sin, not because we hate our sin so much as because we hate the consequences of our sin. In other words, we hate what our sin does to us. Not as much what it does to God or other people, but what it does to us. How it makes us feel, how it makes us look, how it messes up our relationships, or maybe even gets in the way of our goals, career, or otherwise. And so we, we, we confess and we repent on the basis of that. Uh, but the problem with that is that as soon as the consequences or the negative feelings go away, the repentance goes away with it. And the problem for that, the, the problem with that underneath that is that we were motivated not by genuine, biblical, God-given grief over our sin and the destructive nature of sin in general, but just by self-pity over, you know, how it inconvenienced us kind of thing. Uh, and what David is showing us here is the picture of a person who got out of that into genuine confession. Because in verse 5, David says this phrase, you took away the guilt of of my sin. That's a really interesting phrase because if you look at the Hebrew word translated guilt here, uh, you know, I kind of sympathize with the English translators of the Bible because that, that word guilt, it's a Hebrew word that can literally be translated sin. So it's almost like David is saying, and you understand why the English translators didn't, you know, translate it that way. It's almost like David is literally saying, God, you took away the sin of my sin. The point is, what you're seeing here in David is that David saw his sin and David hated his sin, not for its consequences to him, not for what it did to him, but for what it was. His sin was, he just hated it for what it was and he saw it for what it was. And until you and I are brought to that place where we can see with that kind of vision, then what's, what's going to happen is we're going to go through life and, and we might think that we're feeling sorrow over our sin when really we're just feeling sorry for ourselves. And as long as that is the motivator behind our confession and, and repentance, no confession is going to lead to genuine transformation. So secondly, we have to determine between uh, uh, grief and, and self-pity. Uh, number three, and uh, 
Full disclosure, this is the hardest one for me. I like this one the least. Um, we need to change perspectives. This is a tough one. Um, again, verse 5, and this is kind of the flagship verse of the entire psalm. David says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. You might find this interesting. Hopefully you find all of this interesting, actually. I've worked really hard on this, guys. Uh, if, you, if you look up the Greek word for uh, confession, the Greek word, uh, interestingly enough, confession literally means to say the same thing. So, so confession at its, at its core, and, and it has a negative and a positive connotation. I mean, if somebody comes to their church leadership and says, I, have this, I think I have this calling on my life to do this thing, and then the leadership of the church you know, publicly you know, says we agree with that, they're, they're confessing, they're saying the same thing. So it's got you know, different connotations, you'll see it used different ways. But what that means is that the, the essence of confession biblically, it's about seeing something the way that somebody else sees it to the point that you can call it what they're calling it. Now, here's why I really don't like this one. What this means for us is that confession is only real confession when you've taken the time to see what you've done from the perspective of the person you've hurt. Uh, to me, this is, this is the hardest thing to do because what it requires you to do is to experience what it's like to be on the other side of you. Uh, I don't have to ask you if you've ever heard this before. Everybody's heard this before. I know you've been in the middle of an argument, a conflict, or whatever it is, and you've heard the phrase, listen, if I've offended you, I'm sorry. You ever notice how that never actually does anything for the relationship? If you've said that, you know, you've, you, you've seen how that didn't really mean anything to the person you said it to. If you've heard that, it's not really a cathartic thing. If I've offended you, I'm sorry. The reason that doesn't work is because that's basically somebody saying, listen, I'm not interested in taking the time to see things from your perspective or, or empathize with you and feel what you must be feeling. What I'm interested in is saying just enough so that you can't technically call me out for not apologizing and then we can move on. That's what that is. Another version of this is, okay, I'm sorry, but, and then 99% of the apology is them explaining why any rational person would have responded the way that they responded, and actually you should be apologizing to them. Neither of those apologies work. Neither of those confessions are genuine confessions because they're made from a place of, of self-preservation and self-pity. Right? Biblical confession is, is, is to enter into that same situation and to approach the person that you've wronged, regardless of what your motives were, with a posture of the heart that says, listen, I can hardly imagine what it's like to be on the other side of me. And I can hardly imagine what you must be feeling in light of what I did or failed to do. But I am so sorry. And I want to, I want to understand how I've hurt you. And so I'm inviting you to tell me what it's like to be on the other side of me so that I can change. Now, I don't have to tell you that is a, I mean, this is not a joke. That's a horrifying thing to do. That, that requires a, a, a supernatural kind of security, which we're going to get to before we're done today. But if I can ask you to imagine something for a moment, how amazing would a relationship be if the people inside the relationship decided to handle conflict that way with each other? How, how much healthier would our families be, uh, our marriages be, our friendships be, if that's how we dealt with conflict instead of constantly demanding that somebody see things from our perspective. Because that kind of confession, saying the same thing, 
that kind of confession is, is it actually heals a relationship because you're not just mouthing the words, I'm sorry, so that they can't call you out on that and, and now they have to move on. You know, that, that kind of confession is really a sustained effort to stand in somebody else's place, which is perhaps the greatest form of love that there is. That's biblical confession. And, and, and maybe you say, okay, I can do that with people. How do you do that with God? I think it works exactly the same way with God. I think this kind of confession before God is, is approaching God with a, a posture of heart that says, Father, I can't imagine what it would be like to give somebody all that you've given me and to be disrespected and disregarded like I so often disrespect and disregard you. You chose me before the foundations of the world. You sustain every moment of my existence. You've given me Jesus so that I can have joy forever. And I act like you don't exist 99% of the time. Would you help me see how disgusting that is and how much that grieves your heart and hurts our relationship so that I can change? That's confession. It's seeing things from, it's changing your perspective. It's changing your perspective. Fourthly and and finally, and this one's kind of a no-brainer, number four, you have to take full responsibility. Um, again, verse 5, David says, not only did, did, did he confess, but he says, and I did not conceal my iniquity. And what that means at the very least is, is David saying, I didn't come at my failure sideways. I didn't come at this with any kind of qualification or justification or addendum or caveat. I didn't try to cover myself. And so what that means for us today is that you have not confessed If your confession is, okay, I did this, but they did that, and they did that, or you did this, or nobody did this, or all that kind of stuff. What that means is that that even if you and I have been wronged, and we're in a situation where it's 90% on them, and it's only 10% on us, the spiritual discipline of confession is about us owning the part that we played, and and, and basically just being quiet about the rest. And I, I think it's important to mention here, Scripture has a lot to say about confronting a brother or sister who has sinned against you and rebuking them. There's a time and a place for that. But inside the practice of confession, our only job is to own our part, radical ownership of all that we've done wrong. And so those are the, those are the four practices of confession that will lead to, to true blessedness that we see in Psalm 32. It's about, first off, distinguishing between true and false guilt, Secondly, distinguishing between grief and self-pity. Thirdly, changing your perspective. And number four, at the end of it all, taking full responsibility. Those are the four things. But before we're done here, uh, there's one more, I wouldn't call it a practice of confession, as much as it is the foundation that allows us to practice everything else that confession requires. Uh, if, If you think about Psalm 32, especially given that it's situated in the Old Testament, the question this psalm sort of begs is, how is it that God can forgive us when we confess? What I mentioned earlier, whatever David did here was a big deal to the point that it was ruining his life until he got honest about it. And so this psalm is David letting us into this period of time in his life where he, he was brought to this kind of spiritual rock bottom where he, he, he finally confessed and, and literally in the same verse that he says, I will confess, it, not even a verse later, God forgives him. It's immediate and it's automatic and it sort of asks the question, why? Or, or, or maybe how? How can God do this? And, and to see the answer there, you, you go back to the top, verses 1 and 2. It says, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Then verse 2, how joyful is the man the Lord does not charge with sin. That is an amazing statement 
Because what this is saying is that God forgives us, the way that he forgives us is by refusing to charge our sin against us. I remember when I was in high school, there was really only one class that I truly did struggle in. I just could not, it was really difficult. It was chemistry. I absolutely had the hardest time in chemistry. We had this one class or this one uh, test that almost the whole class bombed. Even the really smart kids got like, you know, a B, God forbid, kind of thing. So we were devastated. And eventually, out of sheer mercy, the teacher threw the test out and said it wouldn't count towards our final grade. And we erupted. I mean, it was like Pentecost in the classroom that day because we knew what that meant. We knew that this test, even though we failed it, and that was entirely on us, and we didn't deserve any grace or mercy, We knew that that failure would not be charged against us. And what David is saying here in Psalm 32 is that when you confess your sin to God and God forgives you, that that's exactly how God deals with your sin, that he refuses to charge it against you. Meaning, and I'm just going to remind you of this. I know you've probably heard this before. I just think this is really good news that we always need to hear. In Jesus Your sin has nothing to do with your final grade. Is that not amazing? But if I can go a little bit deeper here, woohoo indeed. If I can if I can go a little bit deeper here, let me let me keep pressing this and ask, okay, but how? How is that? And and you see you see like a whisper of an answer in verse seven, where David says something that again, given the Old Testament, is a really surprising thing to read. In verse seven, David says to God, in the midst of this confession, he says, you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. Now here's why that is, 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 is really interesting given its placement, because we said earlier that ever since Genesis chapter 3, we all know that we need to hide and seek cover. We've known that from the moment that sin entered the world. Yet David, here in this psalm, even before Jesus Christ got here, David had this sense that one day God himself would be the covering. But I have to imagine that people in David's day, not having the clarity that we have now, would have read those words and asked, wait a minute, how can you hide in God? when your fundamental problem is that you need to hide from him. How on earth could the God that you need to hide from himself be your hiding place? And the answer is clearly demonstrated for us when we see Jesus Christ crucified on a cross for us. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but there's a, there's a very specific reason Jesus chose to allow himself to be murdered via crucifixion. No, it's not like Jesus just happened to come down here during the peak of of the Roman Empire and they were really into crucifixion and so that was kind of his lot in life. There's a very specific reason that Jesus chose to allow himself to die in that way and it's because of the unique nature of crucifixion. The thing that made crucifixion so horrifyingly effective as a form of, of execution is because when you were crucified, you weren't just tortured. I mean, lots of forms of execution tortured people, and and, and crucifixion was really good at that. But what made crucifixion unique, you weren't just tortured, you were exposed. You know, they, they would often, just like with Jesus, they would often crucify people, first off on a hill, and then they would be raised up on a cross so that you were made a public spectacle for miles. 
you were stripped naked, having all of your shame exposed, and your arms were physically nailed open so that you couldn't even hide your shame with your hands. It was, it was the most dehumanizing, humiliating form of execution I think mankind has ever invented. And Jesus Christ went through all of that. Meaning what you're seeing at Calvary is that Jesus Christ went through this, this horrifying, humiliating, uncovered exposure that the human heart most naturally, instinctively fears and runs from. And the reason Jesus went through all of that is so that we would never have to. And so what that means for you and I today is that when you come to God the Father and you say, Father, would you accept me on the basis of what your son has done for me? What happens in that very moment is you come into the one hiding place that will never, ever leave you exposed. Because in Jesus, your sins can never, legally, in the high court of God the Father, your sins can never be charged against you. Because every single one of them has been charged against Jesus. They've been paid for in full by Jesus to the point that Scripture can now extend to you the promise that there is therefore now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. Learning that and growing in an understanding of that is what it means to make Jesus your hiding place. And that is not only the final skill of confession, that is the most foundational skill of confession that makes every other skill possible. Because as I was thinking about how to end this teaching, one thing that I have to acknowledge is that confession is a horrifying thing. More so, I'll just give it to you here, more so than any other discipline we're going to talk about in this series, confession can be downright scary. You talk about admitting who you are and what you're really like, making yourself vulnerable, you know, exposing the, the, the ugly nature of your own heart and mind, either to God or to a person that you've wronged, that's a terrifying thing. Not only because we hate being exposed, but because often consequences are attached to confession. And so the only way that we're going to be able to practice the kind of confession God calls us to here in a way that we're not absolutely crushed by our failure is by reminding yourself over and over and over again that you are not defined by anything you've done or have failed to do. You were defined by what Jesus Christ has done for you. And the irony is the more, the more you understand how accepted and loved you are by God because of Jesus, the freer you are to admit how far you still need to go and all that needs to be confessed. That's the irony of the gospel. Let me call the worship team up. We're going to close with this. Uh, in hearing all of this, I don't think that you've really finished your time in Psalm 32 uh, until you find yourself. There's a question that this psalm, I, I really think, requires every single one of us to ask ourselves. It's a question I've been asking myself all week, and so I'm going to make it personal for you. When you spend some time talking about the discipline of confession in Psalm 32, the question you should leave here today with and begin asking even now is what are you concealing that you need to begin confessing? What have you been concealing that God, even here, even now, is calling you to begin confessing? That's a heavy thing. That's a heavy thing. But the promise that this psalm holds out to every single one of us is that if we will learn to do confession like this, if we'll learn to distinguish between true and false guilt by taking our feelings to the word of God, and we'll learn to distinguish between grief and self-pity 
by looking into our own hearts and having the courage to face what we see. You know, if, if we'll learn to change our perspective by inviting people to speak into our lives, and if we will take full responsibility for what we've done while hiding ourselves in Jesus and what he's done for us and all that that means for us, if we'll practice that kind of confession, then the promise of this psalm to you personally is that confession will move from something that is painful and traumatic to something that will bring untold levels of health and joy and life to you to the point that you and I will be able to say with King David, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. This is the discipline of confession. That's it. That's all. Father, I, uh, we have so far to go compared to your holiness and your standard. How foolish for us to think that, that we should not constantly be confessing and constantly be repenting. And it is such a hard thing for us, God, because of our insecurities and this instinctive desire that we have to hide and to cover ourselves. But the truth is, Father, you have, you have provided a kind of covering for us in Jesus that takes away the need for us to play pretend and hide and try to cover ourselves. And so of all the things that I could ask in light of this, God, would you just make us a community of people that are so deeply rooted in what Jesus Christ has done for us and all that it means for us that we would, we would be able to, with joy, confess everything that needs to be confessed and repent of everything that needs to be repented of for your glory and our joy. In the name of your son, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.